Good television podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizard on the Twitters. And I'm Ben Travers, Ben T. Travers on the Twitters. And happy Monday as you're listening to this. Uh, and if you're listening to this on Monday, you are on the verge of some great television ahead of you. Some A truly magnificent, important, very, very topical special is coming out tonight on AMC. And we know you're excited for it. We know you're just chomping at the bit to know what James Cameron has to say about science fiction. Aliens. It's a good movie. Well, I mean, that's the first topic, aliens. That's that's what the first episode's about? That's episode one. Aliens. Aliens. And no. no, I don't think it's just about the movie Aliens. I think it's about all science fiction aliens, but I'm sure, you know, aliens from aliens will be touched upon. I feel like that might come up in the in a, in a show produced by John uh, by James Cameron about about science fiction. Yeah, I mean, in a show, in a show where James Cameron talks to other directors and Zoe Saldana. <laughs> Just so he can have an avatar tie-in to his, you know, yeah. project. Since, you know, that little, what is it, $2 billion five-part film, uh, that might matter a little bit to him at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think perhaps some of his other work will come up. Yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of just using this as a launching pad to talk a little bit about James Cameron because he's an interesting figure in the history of uh, in the history of Hollywood. He's an interesting figure on a lot in a lot of ways and I won't pretend to be you know an expert on James Cameron by any means my primary interest is driven by his box office success often inexplicable box office success um, and and it, it kind of to me ties into this idea of of a t- TV special they're doing like it's not an expensive production that AMC's putting on so it doesn't cost them a lot to, right. to do this um, but at the same time it's like do we expect a lot of people to really want to tune in and pay attention to James Cameron interviewing people uh, every Monday for what six weeks? Yeah, I guess. I I just it it's the same kind of it's a it's a very low key low risk uh, similar question to are people going to really pay money to see Avatar enough times that it will justify the outrageous budget of Avatar? Like where is you know, James Cameron's sweet spot. What's the magic? What's What does he know that we don't in terms of entertaining us and why so many times we think that can't work and then it does? Well, I mean, in, especially because he's not a guy who's like, he's not making the $30 million. He hasn't, at least for some many, many years, made like a small budget movie that ends up breaking out huge. His movies are huge investments for the companies involved. And then fortunately, so far, they've tended to pay off. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, he, he keeps earning his budgets back because of how much money those films make. Even when people say, you know, like, Titanic, huge mistake. That costs way too much. It's on the water. It's a romance. It's three hours long. You're like, this is a terrible plan. And then look what Titanic does. And then right. Avatar, $500 million. This, it's impossible for you to make this back unless you do X, Y, and Z. And then guess what? $2 billion movie. It's It's crazy. Yeah. So in the meantime, we have while we, while we continue to wait for Avatar to come out, like what is it now? Like 2019, 2020? I, don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, I'll look it up. Um, you, yeah, you just had his uh, IMDb up. So I don't trust that. Yeah, I mean, I think they pushed it at least one year. December eighteenth, twenty twenty. Okay. We yep. are t-, t minus two and a half years. No, year and a half year away a half. From, from Avatar two. You know, and I will say. Um, <laughs> You're, you're you're so amused by that. <laughs> uh, Avatar two. That's 
I just, I mean, I can't even imagine it. I can't, I, Avatar seems like a, a weird little blip that time has already forgotten. And here comes the second one. Well, I did. the third and the fourth and the fifth. I told you a little bit about when my family went to Walt Disney World. And oh, yeah. We went to, we went to Avatar Land, um, a.k.a. Pandora. Um and which is a which is a actual kingdom inside of a, 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 like a, a section of the park inside of Animal Kingdom, which is devoted to the land of Pandora. It's kind of amazing. Like they did some amazing stuff in making that come to life. And like the the big Avatar ride that you do is just you know mind boggling. Like you, you you really feel like you're riding on the back of a dragon or whatever you call the thingamabobber that you ride in in the Avatar Land. Um, Man, it's it, probably a dragon. Probably a dra- it's a dragon-like creature, certainly. Yeah, come on. Let's just not... Let's call a spade a spade here. It's a dragon. It's a dragon. Um, but yeah, the whole thing was really cool. And I mean, in, in 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 kind of digging, delving into it, it was like, yeah, I, there's 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 a world here. This is a land. This is like something I'm enjoying experiencing. When's Avatar 2 come out? And like, we're Googling it in line for the ride. And this is like, uh, 2020, because everything is ridiculous. Well, I mean, that's... <laughs> you know point taken there is there is a way i believe and and we'll see that kick into high gear come you know july through december 2020 um you know reminding people why they love the original avatar but at the time i believe when you first mentioned that concept i was just like how many people are there going can they possibly put enough people through pandora to remind them that way to get reinvested in Avatar, or are they going to have? They have to result to other means. There has to oh, be yeah. another way to do it, and I don't think just re-showing the movie is going to do it. So, I'm very curious to see kind of what the strategies are behind marketing this, considering, you know, if two flops or even underperforms, mm-hmm. they've got three more coming. Oh yeah. So, well, these things can go away, given if if, if things got really bad. But you know. Cameron's what is, can, can what is, they go away, Liz? I mean, He's shooting them all at once. Yeah, but the yeah, it's true. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know at what point you get pot committed with a four, 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 four sequels to your insane blockbuster hit. Pretty hard to wrap your head around it. Slash, look back at precedent and say, well, okay, this happened, and and you know they did this. It's like no, no, no. They just kind of planned for it. Yeah. This one's in production. I mean, one of my favorite details about the first, about about the Avatar sequels is the fact that James Cameron took inspiration from the TV world um, in terms of the writing, and he brought in a quote unquote right. He brought together a writers' room of writers, and they all developed out like basically all the sequels. They kind of beat them out plot wise in the room together, and then split them up so that each. You know, I think, and I, f- I feel like there were some interesting people in that room. Like I think Josh Friedman, I know, um, a couple others. No, I don't know. I'll look this up, but uh, the point is, is that I, I, you know, the thing, the thing that the reason that James Cameron knew about writers' rooms and knew that the way they worked, of course, was because of what I would. You're looking at his IMDb page right now. I'm guessing this is probably the most substantial failure on it. Am I right, right or wrong about Dark Angel? Oh yeah, for sure. Dark Angel, the one thing that James Cameron tried to do and didn't succeed at. Like in terms, in terms of, uh, in terms of something he directed. In terms of something that he was heavily invested in, and not just a producer, you know, not just an, an EP or whatever. He directed the pilot. Um, yeah, he directed the pilot. He's the credited creator. Um, this was very much a James Cameron joint, and it was also it was a big deal at the time. Like it wasn't something, uh, it wasn't something insignificant. They were they were putting a lot of effort behind it. Whereas, 
you know, some of the, you know, the documentaries he does, um, some of the little smaller things, they're not necessarily there just to make money. The expectations are a lot lower for those sort of things. So in terms of something that he put himself out there for and put himself behind fully and was expected to be a commercial success, I'd say, yeah, Dark Angel is probably his, his least successful venture. I don't even know if I'd call it a failure, though. I mean, how many seasons did it go? One. Just the one? Just the one. All right, it might be a failure. Well, actually, no, wait, no, I'm totally wrong. I'm sorry. It went two seasons. It still might be a failure, but yeah. not bad. Um, I got it, confused because, like, on the, I think it says there's 40. Yeah, there's 40. There's There would be 46 episodes or something, or 42, maybe. 42 episodes, yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah, I don't know how much TV that is back in 2000, so. That's two seasons. 2002, yeah. Um, is this, part, this is the part where I get to uh, remind people what Dark Angel was, right? Yes. Okay, Dark Angel. Uh Dark Angel was this show that uh, ran on Fox from the years, uh, I believe it's 2000 to 2002. Do I have that right? Yes. Um, Wait. Yes. Thank you. Uh, So 2000 to 2002. It was a a shaky time in our history. Um, And it starred Jessica Alba as uh, a, basically a, the result of a super soldier uh, government experiment who had superpowers and in part triggered by the fact she had cat DNA. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's easy to get bogged down in the details. Anyways, she was young, young, sassy, young, sassy uh, woman on the run from the government because they wanted to track her down again because she had a, you know all the super soldier uh, DNA inside her. Uh, she ends up teaming up with uh, Michael Weatherly, who now you, you, who now is the star of CBS's Bull, um, and uh, they had like a will they won't they thing going on. Even though he, in the first episode of the series, gets uh, shot and ends up confined to a wheelchair, uh, though later in the se- series he gets robot legs that let him walk around. And <laughs> sorry, I, I need to stop talking about this, even though. Watching Ben's reactions to me explain all these details is really great. It's uh, it sounds like a <laughs> an interesting show. Ben, I re- you remember I told because I remember I remember how I ended up rediscovering Dark Angel, a show I did watch when it originally ra- ran. Uh, but a couple of years ago, we were working on a list of uh, we were working on a list of directors who should never make TV shows, and. James Cameron came up, and then I was like, but wait, he actually did make a TV show, and I should clearly go back and rewatch every episode, and then tell Ben about the time when, uh, at the beginning of season two, she, he, uh, he, uh, Jessica Alba and Michael Weatherly are really close to hooking up, but then she gets infected with a virus. That means she can't make, she can't touch his exposed skin, um, because then he'll die. Of course. Yeah. Uh, the most obvious way to keep a couple apart. Touch each other and you're dead. Yeah, it works. It's effective. Well, I can, yeah, would be. Um, yeah, this was several years before Pushing Daisies, if you're wondering. Uh, anyway, so uh, <laughs> Dark Angel was a show that existed. It was, it was, it was kind of fun. It was like weirdly bonkers uh, sci-fi stuff. It was kind of very much in that, you know, Canadian Canadian sci-fi drama vibe, where you know, just kind of people having fun, people coming up with crazy plot lines, lots of cool guest stars, that sort of thing. Well, what's interesting about kind of remembering Dark Angel and, uh, you know, James Cameron dipping his toe back into television using this interview format, 
is is you know now what he's doing we don't we don't know the story structure of these avatar movies we don't know how he's breaking it we know you know that in the past he utilized something like a writer's room which is a um you know a tv conceit yeah uh, and he's obviously familiar with the medium but one of the things that a lot of people talk about these days is how franchises movie franchises have become a sort of never-ending tv series like they're not only there to give you a two-hour fix and and a complete story, they're there to build out a universe that can sustain itself for X number of future films. And now Cameron is very knowingly doing that, not only with the potential of Avatar, you know, becoming five films, but with the reality that he's making five films. So it's like he's setting out to make ten hours ish of 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 a story and. I mean, looking back on Dark Angel, considering the structuring of it, can you, is there anything to glean from that in terms of what might be his problems, what might be his, you know, solutions, what might uh, he have learned from that experience, or what might we worry about in terms of him building out another one of these structures on a much bigger scale? Like, he's got more money, he's got, he can handle special effects, he's got all the time he wants, apparently, um... But like, the if he if he is kind of implementing any sort of TV structuring into this story, I mean, were there clear problems with that when he was doing Dark Angel? Well, let's not overestimate how much actual involvement he had with the writing of Dark Angel. He was definitely involved with the creation of the show. Definitely directed the pilot. Um, I, but I, I think in general, with the but you know, he definitely was involved. Of course, as an executive producer. Uh, Dark Angel very much falls into the model of uh, previous, uh, definitely falls into the model of sci-fi shows um, from that era in terms of being largely standalone in episode constructions. Like every episode is like, ah, Max has to deal with some sort of wacky problem. And sometimes, and there'd be narrative, there'd be, there'd be tissue connecting episodes to be sure, especially I think near the end of season two, it gets a little more serialized, but it's a little more standalone. Um, So I would... I would expect that av- the Avatar movies will probably lean on cliffhangers pretty hard, um, but it'll be. In- I feel like if they take more of a standalone approach, like that's the big thing is what kind. Of, what, it's it's one thing to be like, oh, we're making essentially a we're making a series of films that are going to feel like TV, um, and. <clears throat> well, it's also interesting in, in the idea that. Cameron doesn't really make sequels. He made Terminator and Terminator 2. Right. And he made Aliens, which was uh, a sequel to another person's movie. Right. And what's interesting when he makes sequels is he pretty much reinvents things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Terminator and Terminator 2 is a complete reinvention in the in the idea of who the hero is. Like, they, they really completely altered, uh, you know, uh, the Terminator itself, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, into becoming... The opposite of what he was in the original film. Spoiler alert for Terminator 2. Yes, uh, kind of. Uh, Not even really. But um, and then with with Alien and Aliens, he he completely altered the formula of what that movie was. The original Alien was this, you know, kind of uh, intense chamber piece where they were trapped on a ship and there was one alien, and you were slowly discovering what that alien was, and that was part of the horror, just kind of learning what it was capable of, and uh, it hiding in the shadows and barely being seen. And in Cameron's vision for the sequel, he you know 
put him in a world full of aliens. He turned it into an action movie where they were, you know, uh, trapped in a room with with dozens of them and trying to fight their way out, and then a planet full of them and trying to escape it, and then a, a giant mother alien that you know was was you know building again the kind of the backstory of these creatures and expanding it in an in- interesting way. Yeah. But for as much as he does that, as much as you know, aliens set up the opportunity to make Alien Three and Fo- and Resurrection, and then the the Prometheus feel like all this stuff. As much as it set that up, and as much as Terminator Two set up the opportunity for them to make all these other Terminator iterations, he doesn't really do that himself. Uh, so the idea that he's tackling all of the avatars as sequels like this is an interesting challenge for like how much will he continue to reinvent from movie to movie in in the same vein you're talking about how much will they be standalone films right versus how much is he looking at it more like a tv show and saying this is 10 hours we're going to just keep going with the story and i've got enough juice in each section to sell it individually because it's 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 odd like it's a People talk about making 10-hour movies all the time, but that's not really what they are. And the idea of... 10-hour movies within the context of, like, a TV, a season of television. Right. Like, they say Westworld was a 10-hour movie. And that's not true. Like, it's not. It's a TV show. It's it's got individual episode arcs within each part. And they know that because they're sharing it weekly. Like, every week you're getting a new entry. And then if you decide to binge it, you can watch it all at once. And, yeah, you could wait until, God, I don't fucking know, 2028 or something, whenever Avatar's completely done, to just binge all of these if you wanted to. But most people are going to watch them in chunks and then have to wait a year, a year and a half, two years between them. And that's a very different proposition than what television is. Television gives you a lot more to absorb in one dose than film is typically doing. So I, I'm his approach to this in terms of his relationship with television is pretty interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I have several things to say about what you just said. Uh, first off, one of my favorite little random facts is that um, when it comes to Aliens and how it has a very different feel from the first Alien, he was simultaneously writing the script for Aliens at the same time as Rambo colon First Blood Part 2. And li- literally at the same time, like, uh, like I think, like, he, I remember hearing some story about how he had two different desks, and one was the Rambo desk, and one was the Aliens desk. But at the same time, like, yeah, he wrote two war movies at the same time, essentially, is what happened. Yeah, and, and one was excellent, and one was the worst of the franchise. Of course, you have a strong opinion about the Rambo films. Rambo 2 was garbage. <laughs> Um, also, to back to back up to the writers who are currently assigned to Ava- mm. Avatar, this is this report might be a little old, but currently Avatar Two is being written by or was written by Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, who wrote both Rise of the Planet of the Apes as well as the upcoming well, this, this how old this article is, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, Josh Friedman is Avatar Three, and currently in Avatar Four is in the hands of Shane Solero. This is according to an article on CinemaBlend.com, which is uh, aggregating the New York Times. So they, these things might have been updated. I apologize for not finding a more current listing. But those are the people. But Shane Solero has a road on the Armageddon, Ben. That's great. Yeah, there you go. See? Um, That's good news. Yeah, the other thing, uh, the, the, the big thing that this conversation brings up is, and this is, I think, the biggest question when it comes to the Avatar movies and whether or not they're going to end up playing like TV is how much effect the Marvel Cinematic Universe is having Jesus. on the thought process. Yeah. Um, as, of, as of recording this, I have seen Avatar, not Avatar, I have seen Avengers Infinity War. Ben has not. I don't want to spoil anything. I will not spoil anything. 
Except for this. There is a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I, I feel like... I, I, I mean, it's not a huge spoiler. Like, that's a tiniest spoiler. Tiniest spoiler in the world. But yes. Going into, going into Avengers expecting a complete story to be told, you, you're not getting that. Um, you're not getting an incomplete story, but there's definitely a part two in the horizon on the horizon, specifically in 2019. Um, so, that's no, not that's not it's interesting. Like that, that's not something that's new to cinema, and yeah. it's not something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe invented by any means. But because of their immense popular those movies' immense popularity, it could in some form train audiences to be more accepting of something like an avatar where they know that the rest is coming and they're willing to wait if they get cliffhangers or if they're uh, properly entertained within those two hour chunks. Yeah. I mean, and the reason I thought of bringing it up uh, wasn't just because I just saw the movie, uh, but because our good friend, Allison Keen uh, was having a conversation with uh, our other friends, uh, our other friends, Dan Feinberg and uh, Todd Vanderwolf uh, on Twitter. And she basically found this quote from an interview with Mark Ruffalo, where Mark Ruffalo says, oddly enough, I joke with people that this is like doing a TV show where you shoot one episode every three years. And that really is kind of the way that it's ended up feeling in the long run. As I say, this is someone who's seen every Marvel film and is a huge fan of the franchise. And um, <clears throat> even even when it does things that may or, she may I may or may not appreciate. Um, and it is really fascinating to think about the show, think about the franchise in that context because everything does. There is real effort to make everything connect and make it feel like a massive, complete universe. Even if you're, and even if you're only a fan of like the Guardians movies or the Thor movies or what have you. Um. Yeah, and I, I just <laughs> argue that that idea is is fine, and I'm sure to Mark Ruffalo it feels that way. But it is an immensely unsatisfying experience if you think about watching one episode of television every two or three years like even even once a year it's not enough like it's just it's not there's not enough substance there to be able to carry it forward and that's how i feel with a lot of the marvel movies because they spend so much time on introductions and setups and so little time with whatever's at the core of theirs. That's why they had so many problems with villains. That's why they've had so many problems with just kind of the, the internal narratives. It's they, they connect all this stuff really well, and that's satisfying to a lot of people because they see those connections and they're impressed by the connections or they are hopeful of the possibilities of how, you know, they'll be surprised by a cameo or, you know, they'll have a crossover like Thor Ragnarok where you've got the Hulk and Thor sharing a movie. Um, and then, you know, the ultimate crossovers where everybody's coming together like in Avengers. But in terms of just, like, story structuring, the idea of, of watching any TV show, and I, this is coming from a proponent of waiting a week between episodes. Waiting a year is preposterous. Yeah, yeah. Waiting two years is insane. Like, it's it, it's not – it's surprisingly sustainable in my mind for these kind of movies. I guess there's just enough action and charm and, you know – understanding and a certain form of simplicity and escapism but uh but for me that's why they're infuriating like Mm -hmm. that's why it's so hard to watch them because you're not you're so far out of control and you're expected to invest so much uh both with your money and with your time outside of the theater that it becomes an exhausting experience 
I mean, here's the thing I'll say. Um, this is by far the most cliffhangery a Marvel film has ever gotten. Most, you know, we are going to make you really want the next chapter of the story right the fuck now. It is easily... It is the first time I've really been disappointed. Um, not by the not by the movie as a whole. I'm still kind of figuring out how I feel about the movie as a whole. But the ending definitely wasn't my favorite. I'll just say it like that. Um, and yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, I, I, you've got me now kind of excited for the Avatar movies. Oh, great. Uh, because, if only because your point about how James Cameron doesn't do sequels, like, likes to reinvent things. If he actually does, like, if he actually does, like, really try to make each of the four goddamn sequels to this, this franchise really different, distinct films, I think that could be really cool. Like, similar to how I feel like like the Star Trek universe is like the the feature films in that fran in that franchise. You know they're they're not all great certainly, but you know they've been there's been a there's been an effort to vary tone and try new things and like take you know let different directors and get involved and or writers and I feel like the ver the variety helps the variety is a benefit. Well, and, and I guess my my skepticism in, on that front. Um is that the, the difference between what he's doing with these and what he's done before is time. So it comes back again to time. And with between Terminator and Terminator 2, there was a lot of time, which gives him a lot of perspective on the first film and where he can take the next film. And he's had a lot of time between Avatar and Avatar 2, so he could take Avatar 2 in a wholly new direction. But he has no time between 3, 4, and 5. Right. So I think the idea that he completely reinvent movies is just a lot harder to rely upon or expect when he's writing them all together. Mm -hmm. And when you see people write them all together, usually there's a strong cohesive vision between them. It'd be like, you know, uh, I mean, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, like being like those parts being wholly separate from one another when there's little changes, but tonally, structurally, um, thematically, like a lot of them are just, they're, they're very much the same picture. Um, and that's kind of what fans expect, especially if it's good. So that's the other problem. It's like if, if they really want to make a blockbuster that people will get excited for again and again, much like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there has to be something holding them together. And the formula of the Marvel movies is so very, very clear that it's, it's very hard to imagine something that's spending similar amounts of money going in a totally opposite direction. Um, and it's just as it's similar, I mean, lots of TV shows do kind of break out standalone episodes during a season, but mm -hmm. it's like one out of 10, like right. if we're lucky, like it's usually not, it's usually not every other one is different. Um, which is again, understandable considering what they're trying to do from a, from a big picture. So, uh, I, I'm curious very curious to see what happens with these. Obviously, we're a long way off. I don't expect him to discuss much of it, like in in terms of the show, like the AMC show where he's interviewing other directors. Like I'm sure Avatar will be brought up enough, but I don't expect any sort of insight into yeah what's what's coming in terms of Avatar two, three, four, and five. But um, I think it's I think it is consistently interesting to have the discussion of what separates film and TV. Uh, as so many things blend together. Because 
it's it's impossible to imagine somebody a, a television network giving a show a billion dollars that Cameron would need to make what he needs, and then oh wait, Amazon just did that. I was going to say for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So it's like if he wanted to make this as a TV show, he could have. Cameron's a big supporter of cinema, but um, yeah, it's I mean again the lines just keep closing in on each other, yeah. and I think there needs to be a discussion about the value in each of those, like in what you get out of a movie versus what you get out of a TV show and why. Yeah. So. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but you know what I just realized? What's up? If they're in, the, they're in production on these movies right now, they have to have cast a lot of stuff. This makes me think that there, there, is prob- there are probably like a dozen really high quality, great actors really cool people who have been cast in these movies and we have no idea. And they've been, they're, they're under strict confidentiality agreements and we'll, I'm sure they'll be revealed down the line. But like, now, and now I'm just genuinely excited thinking about like who he could have cast, who, like what mystery people like suddenly had, like for some reason weren't working for, two, didn't seem to be working for two months and then it turns out they're in this. Yeah, and that'll be easier to hide in terms of a, of a big picture kind of th- kind of idea, but it does bring up another interesting point that once we kind of get into, you know, 2020 and get into the second, the third, how are they going to keep a cap on spoilers? Like usually you're worried about them spoiling the movie that's about to come out. In this case, you know, slip of the tongue, leaked script, leaked footage, wrong, whatever, like any sort of mistake at all could spoil something that's in like the fourth film. Mm. And that's yeah. <laughs> that's really problematic if you're you know you're banking on people showing up. So I just I mean that the lid on this thing, the security involved with this has to just be unparalleled. Yep. Yep. Marvel levels of uh, crazy probably. I think probably more. I don't know. You can't really go much higher than Marvel. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see indeed. Perhaps we're already seeing it in our, yeah. the lack of things we know. Yeah. In the meantime, Ben, what was the best thing you watched last week? Um, the best thing I watched last week, Liz, was The Americans. Um, the Americans is having a, a fantastic final season. And, I mean, this episode, there's been multiple episodes that move a lot quicker than you're accustomed to. And it it doesn't feel like it's because it's ending. Like, the episodes individually don't feel like, oh, they're they're moving stuff forward at a faster pace than normal because they know they have to get through this by the end. Um it's just very organic, and this last week's episode uh, just hit on so many, <laughs> so many levels they've been building to for so long. Some of them I had no expectation of ever happening; others uh, that seemed inevitable. Um, but I mean, just the rich family dynamics they're setting up. The the political parallels are exquisite. The performance is still just out of this world good. Um, I hope. People are watching. I hope Emmy voters are watching. It uh, needs to have a nice little resurgence here in its final year. Um, but yeah, Americans is great, you guys. Five episodes left. Aww. <laughs> uh, but Liz, what was the best thing you watched last week? Well, um, I've got like an episode and a half to left to change my mind on this, but uh, I'm currently finishing up uh, the, fir- the second season of 3%. And 3%... Uh, I wasn't really super into the beginning of this season initially just because something that really hooked me in with the first season of this Brazilian 
weird Brazilian drama. Uh, it's about, you know, a secret process. It's, it's about a, uh, you know, basically it's Hunger Games. You compete to, you compete in this competition to join the 3% of society that gets to live in, you know, luxurious abandoned. Otherwise you get stuck in the slums of this uh, society. And the first season was really structured around the competition. And the second season is much less to that degree. It's much more about the world and much more about the characters from the first season and what they're up to now. Uh, that being said, midway through the season, uh, a couple they throw a couple of uh, wrenches in the mix, and now things are just kind of crazy. And I'm huh. I feel like it's it's not it's very different. It has a different feel from the first season, but a lot of the details are very similar, and I'm really enjoying it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very I I feel like. I was worried about it, but then the, a couple of big choices they make uh, seem to seem to have like a real a seismic effect on what's going on. Well, and a lot of, I mean, I guess I, I shouldn't say this. I'm not the expert, but it feels like it would be easier, or at least um, easier, to generate a compelling narrative when you're building out that world, like they did in the first season, like mm-hmm. where they use that that very basic premise and then kind of create uh, a world and characters within it, than to extend it in season two which is why season twos can always be a little mm-hmm. tricky um so it's refreshing to hear that they're doing some you know they're throwing some curveballs in there and uh really going for it yeah. um and how many episodes are there 10 there's 10 this year okay. yeah i believe i think it, the first season was like eight yeah i thought i thought it was shorter but i couldn't remember yeah uh season 10 is a little is, and uh but yeah like they're also digging into the backstory a lot more of you know not flashbacks just, flashbacks um yeah, I'm starting to get obsessed with flashbacks, guys. Look for that to come up more lately, <laughs> more in the future. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun season. Gonna love Westworld. Yep. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. Episode two, baby. Um, That's good. Uh, okay, uh, Ben. What's the next thing you're looking forward to? Oh, the next thing I'm looking forward to is Dear White People, uh, season two. That has nothing to do with a very special guest that might be coming on the podcast. Yeah, not teasing that at all. Nope, wouldn't promote that. That would be very anti, very good television podcast policy. You mean promoting promoting ourselves? Yep. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, not only was season one one of my favorite new shows slash shows of that year, um, but uh, season two has already gotten a very crucial rave review from our own David Ehrlich, uh, who binged it. <laughs> Uh, weeks ago, honestly, I don't know how he finds the time, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something where there was no reason to suspect season two would be any less brilliant than the first. And, you know, without, without watching any of it, I obviously can't say if that's true or not, but my expectations are very high. And, um, it's also just, it's a show to be excited about. Like, it's nice to have a show to be excited about. There's a lot coming out in April, um, some of it can feel really daunting, like A Handmaid's Tale, where it's just so intense throughout, yeah. you know, the thing, and, and you, it's so weighty that you've got to really, you know, consider a lot of stuff. And, I mean, Dear White People deals with a ton of pertinent, uh, you know, current subject matters and, and, and political problems and uh, just the culture of today. But at the same time, it's really funny and really fast a, a lot of the time and, you know, a lot of charming performances and wonderful characters. So it's easy to just sink back into that world. And... Now that that was a very long-winded rant, I will just say that is what I'm excited for. <laughs> and, uh, Elizabeth, how about yourself? Dear White People Season 2. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a good pick. Yeah, I know. Only If only someone had just gone into detail about why. Um, yes. Whatever, everything you just said. 
Yeah. Um, I'm very excited about Lena Waithe getting to join the show. Yeah. yeah which yeah. is something they apparently she apparently really wanted to be a part of season one because she and Justin Simeon are longtime friends. Uh, but she was busy making her own television shows. A little busy. A little busy. But she was able to make time for season two, and I'm very excited to see her. Yeah, I like that the first photo of her is just is just her is just way looking super skeptical, like just kind of like side eyes. I'm like, what? I, I mean, she so. is the master of the side eye. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, um, but you'll be able to read all about that and more on IndieWire.com, where you where you uh, where you will also find news, reviews, interviews, features, all the stuff you like. And if you are listening to us, then you should definitely be listening to all the other IndieWire podcasts, including Screen Talk with Michael Schneider. Uh, wait, that's two podcasts. Screen yep. Talk with Eric Cohen and Ann Thompson and Turn It On with Michael Schneider. Yep. The film podcast that started it all, Screen Talk, and yes. the TV podcast that came second to ours with Michael Schneider. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, I mean, this goes without saying, uh, you're listening to the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast because Chris O'Fall is perfect and you want to hear him every week to brighten your day. We should send you to New York at Christmas so that you can Andrew Lincoln him with, with the cards. Lincoln. Oh, man. I would do that for sure. Well, Chris is coming to town in May. Is he? So we might what? be able to set up a crossover We event. should have, what, what is Chris doing in L.A.? I think it's Emmy stuff. I'm not sure. Oh, cool. Well, we should have him on the podcast. Yeah. And you can, I can witness, witness, you guys can hear just how wonderful Chris is for yourselves if you don't listen to Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. But you should be listening to Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast because we just told you to. Yeah, if you're not, what are you doing? That's really sad. What are you doing with your life? I know, right? Anyway. <laughs> Anyways, we will be back next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, keep watching television. Wait. Liz, where are they going to find us on the Twitters? Oh, that's right. I'm so sorry. Let's go back. How would they ever find us? I don't know. We've never mentioned it before. I know. It's never come up. But you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers. And you can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet and wish her a belated, slightly belated, happy birthday. Aw. Thank you. Yes. Yes, it is. As you were listening to this, it was my birthday a couple of days ago. Happy birthday, Liz. Thank you, Ben. Ben and brought donuts for the office, which was very nice. Well, I, I brought donuts for Liz. Yes, but then I gave them to the you office. You gave them to the office. Yes. They're your donuts. But I had a spe- you, you you gave me a special jelly donut and I ate it all and it was very right. good. Birthday donut. But Bir- still all the donuts were yours. You chose what to do with them. <laughs> it would have been really funny if I just chose to eat them all like right in front of you guys. Well, you could have chose to eat them all. You could have also just been like, you know what? Nobody gets donuts and just dumped them out in front of us. Or you could have been like, you know what? I'm taking these home from our real friends. And then nobody got donuts. I mean, there's so many options you could have done. But they were your donuts. And it's your birthday. So you could have done whatever you want. Well, I chose to share. Uh, and if you'd like to share anything with Liz, remember, that's at Lizlet with an I and then an E. Correct. We will be back next week. And thank you guys so much for listening and uh, keep watching television, like I just said. The <laughs> <laughs> least, least uh, anticipate, like drawn out anticipation of keep watching television ever. It's how we do. Oh, this weekend. Yeah.